great to be with the family of God this evening. We have an excellent crowd here. So much appreciate all the efforts you've put forth to be here tonight. We have uh, those from here and locally and uh, yonder places, and we're happy to have all of you here. We announced previously that we'd be talking on this subject tomorrow night, and I was informed that the congregation at Brundage would be able to be here tonight, so I've decided to go ahead and uh, address this topic, which is in the past, I guess, been a controversial topic, and then I thought it really wasn't that controversial, and then I understand it's controversial again, and people have questions, and a new generation is growing up. Uh, little boys and girls are becoming young men and women, and they need to know what the Bible has to say on this subject. And there's going to come a time when these little boys and girls get older where they're going to ask us, who are parents, can we have a drink? We're talking tonight on social drinking, recreational drinking. Turn with me if you go to John chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 through 11. I guess if there's any so-called proof text for those out in the world, many of which don't really know much about the Bible to justify their uh, um, spending time or justifying their drinking of alcoholic beverages, it's this passage right here. And they want to pin it on Jesus himself. But tonight we're going to learn that that's not the case. John 2, beginning with verse 1, the Bible says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece, so somewhere between 120 to 180 gallons. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This first recorded miracle of Jesus, many beautiful thoughts could be brought from this, but we want to focus on the idea, what kind of wine was this? And does this passage and can this passage be used to justify social and recreational drinking? <clears throat> According to a U.S. News and World Report article, alcohol costs the United States $117 billion a year in premature deaths, reduced production, and special medical treatments. A Gallup poll showed that one in four American families, or 61 million people are plagued by alcohol-related problems like retarded children, depression, divorce, domestic violence, crime, sickness, suicide, and murder. Some of us have experienced this firsthand on both sides of my family, on my mom's side and on my dad's side. I've witnessed this, uh, the children of um, alcoholics or drunkards. One died in his 40s. The other died in his early 50s. Both of them were divorced 
and both of them left behind children who were retarded either mentally or physically. In the United States, marijuana, cocaine, heroin, and so on are illegal, but alcohol, which is legal, kills 50 times more people than all illegal drugs combined. Alcohol is the number one killer of teenagers. Approximately 10,000 people between the age of 16 and 24 are killed each year in alcohol-related accidents. The life expectancy of every age group in America has increased, except one, our teenagers. One in three high school seniors, one in four sophomores, and one in 10 eighth graders report having had five or more drinks in a row within the last two weeks. The Partnership for a Drug-Free America reports that over half of eighth graders and 80% of high school seniors admit trying alcohol. So the question comes eventually in every household, if there's any kind of a relationship between parents and children, dad, mom, can I have a drink? What will you answer when you are faced with that? And those of you who are young people, there's coming a time not very long if it hasn't come yet, when you're going to be asked and invited to come to a party where there's going to be drinking taking place. How will you respond? I was amazed to find that the average age of the first taste of alcohol is 12, and that it's not uncommon to find 10-year-old alcoholics. Teenagers can become hardcore alcoholics in as little as three to six months, according to the experts. Social drinking, recreational drinking, does not pass the fruit test. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 through 21, we're instructed to be fruit inspectors. When we look at the fruit of social and recreational drinking, it's all bad. None of it's good. Now, we're aware, and I think uh, nearly universal agreement among those who would claim to be Christians, that alcoholism or really drunkenness is wrong, that it's sinful. The Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 and 10, be not deceived, and that's kind of a warning whenever you see that. That's an area where people tend, uh, had a tendency to be deceived even in the first century, and we have a tendency to be deceived too. Whenever you see that, that's like an exclamation before what he's going to say. Be not deceived. No drunkards, that's the Bible word for an alcoholic, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Most of Christians agree that getting drunk is sin, but many suggest that drinking is okay as long as it's done in moderation. Listen to this. This is from a teen study Bible. Uh, it's a refuel uh, article on partying. And this is a quotation. And this is one of the reasons why I'm not real high on these study Bibles. A lot of misguided uh, direction here. This is a quote. It's Friday night and you're glad to get an invite to a party. The problem is you know that most people present will be sloshing beers. What do you do? Drinking might feel cool. It might calm your social jitters. It might make you forget about life's most hideous problems. But for now, drinking is illegal. And drinking too much can undo your life. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, which will ruin you. Listen, folks and young people, the right answer is if you know that there is going to be drinking going on at any party, you just stay away. You avoid that at all costs. That is not a place for Christians to be. 
The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, that we are not ignorant of his devices. And one of, the, one of the most effective devices that the devil has is luring young people, pure and innocent, wholesome young people, into this environment and all kinds of evil and wicked things start happening. In Proverbs 6, verse 27, he has something else in mind, but I think an application can be made to this idea right here. Proverbs 6, 27 says, Can a man take fire? In his bosom and his clothes not be burned. I like what the old time preacher J.T. Johnson wrote in the Christian Messenger. This is some 170 years ago, 1833, but I think it, it's still relevant and applicable today. He says, moderation is appropriate in many things, but not poison. Taking arsenic in moderation is a bad idea, and so is the poison of alcohol. What are we talking about? When we talk about alcohol, what is the fruit of alcohol? In Proverbs 23, beginning with verse 29, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but the Bible there indicts the drinking of alcohol and the result of that. Alcoholic wine. Listen to what he says as a result of that. Woe, sorrow, contentions, complaints, wounds without cause, redness of eyes. He says it bites like a serpent and it stings like an adder. It's like a, it's like a venomous snake. You need to stay away from it. I think it's interesting. Notice, is it poison? Is alcohol really poison? Well, the word itself, intoxicate, you look at that and you don't have to be a genius to figure out is poison, toxic. Anything toxic is poisonous. And that's what happens when you drink. You get intoxicated by the alcohol. Alcohol is a poison. The Birmingham News wrote the following. Scientific data show that alcohol is the most physically deteriorating drug there is. It causes more organic damage than any other drug. In the book, None of Their Diseases, doctors S.I. McMillan and David Stern provide the drastic consequences of alcohol, talking about the damage in the body, nerve damage, brain damage, heart damage, damage done to the unborn, the list goes on and on and on. Alcohol plays a part in over 50% of murders that take place, 57% of the rapes, 80% of suicides, and 47% of robberies. Alcohol and social drinking does not pass the fruit test. On top of that, 17,000 lives are lost every year because of drunk driving. And then, of course, there's the pain of children abused by drunken fathers and the destruction of countless homes. Don't pass the fruit test. So when your son or your daughter asks you, can I have a drink? What are you going to say? I hope tonight, as we continue in this study, you will become uh, confident and resolved and you will develop, if you don't have them already, firm convictions. Son, you need to stay away from it. You need to leave it alone. Daughter, never even take the first drink. That's the only guaranteed cure not to become an alcoholic or a drunkard. One of the very common misunderstandings today is, well, when you see the word wine in the Bible, it's got to mean alcohol, right? And there we have right there in John 2, the first miracle that Jesus um, performs. We've got him turning water into wine. Big party. They've already uh, had a, a lot to drink. And he's uh, making 120, 180 more gallons of wine 
What are you trying to say that we should stay away from alcohol for? What's up with all that? Well, the fundamental misunderstanding has to do with the meaning of wine. People say, well, when you see the word wine, automatically means alcohol. Well, does it? Does it really? Now, today, in 2006, when we see the word wine in the newspaper or anywhere else, we heard of the word, that's how it's used, and it has that meaning in the modern dictionaries. But it hadn't always been that way. In fact, it's not been very long at all um, since that meaning has changed. 100 years ago, listen to some of these uh, encyclopedias and dictionaries. This is Funkin' Wagnall's New Standard Dictionary, 1955. Defining wine. The fermented juice of the grape. In loose language, the juice of the grape, whether fermented or not. That's just 50 years ago. Um, in uh, 1971, New Webster's Encyclopedic Dictionary of the English Language defines must as a type of wine or juice pressed from the grapes but not fermented. In 1896, Webster's International defines wine the express juice of grapes. That's grape juice. Especially, it says, when fermented. A beverage prepared from grapes by squeezing out their juice and usually allowing it to ferment. So not even at all times, even uh, in 30 years ago, 50 years, 100 years ago, was wine always referring to grape juice. In 1828, Webster's defines must as new wine or wine pressed from the grape but not fermented. This type of wine was absolutely not fermented. 1759, Nathan Bailey's New Universal English Dictionary, wine, a liquor made of the juice of grapes, liquor, anything liquid, drink, juice, etc. Must, sweet wine, newly pressed from the grape. When you press the grape and the liquid that comes out, that's never wine. That's always Grape juice. If it's rotten, it goes beyond that stage and becomes vinegar. It's putrid. 1748, Benjamin Marin's A New English Dictionary defines wine. The first definition then is the juice of the grape. Second definition, a liquor extracted from other fruits beside the grape. The vapors of wine as wine disturbs reason. This is interesting. This is uh, William Whiston's translation of Josephus' book, The Antiquity of the Jews from 1737. Referring to Joseph's interpretation of the cupbearer's dream, Josephus writes, Thou sayest that thou didst squeeze this wine from three clusters of grapes with thine hands. He's talking about what we know of today as just regular, ordinary grape juice. Well, that's the English word. When you go to the Latin word, we find the same thing. And this is a Latin lexicon published in 1740, defines two different types of wine, sweet wine and boiled wine as unfermented grape juice. It goes on to say that even the very grapes are called wine. Pliny, who lived and was a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, wrote, For all the sick, wine is most useful when its forces have been broken by the strainer. And what he's referring to is one of, the, one of four ways in which um, the juice was treated so it would not, could not ferment. He speaks of this kind of wine as a must which flows spontaneously from the grapes. Horace, who um, lived uh, back in the ancient times, in the times which the Bible was written, says of some wine, you can drink 100 glasses without the fear of intoxication. This is not alcoholic wine. This is not fermented wine. This is not uh, what we ordinarily think of as wine, but that's how they spoke of it. Aristotle, living in the fourth century BC, refers to a sweet grape juice beverage that though called wine, has not the effect of wine, for it does not taste like wine and does not intoxicate 
like ordinary wine. I'm not crazy about going and just reading from uh, things from history, but folks, there's a lot of confusion today. And when you leave tonight, you need to know that the word wine does not automatically mean fermented alcoholic wine. Athenius, the grammarian who lived at 200 AD, recommends non-alcoholic wine grape juice for stomach trouble. This is a quote. Let him take sweet wine mixed with water or warm, especially that called, that called protropos, as being good for the stomach. For sweet wine does not make the head heavy. It doesn't intoxicate because it's not alcoholic. And then the, the Hebrew word that's translated wine, the Jewish encyclopedia writes, fresh wine before fermenting is called wine of the vat. And they give a Hebrew name for that. In the Encyclopedia Judaica and the American Jewish yearbook, you find essentially the same thing. And what is that? That when you see the word wine, as it was used historically, it does not always refer to alcoholic wine. And how do you figure out in the Bible whether a word is being used, when it's used, the word wine is used, whether it's talking about alcohol or not? Well, you have to look at the context. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. But uh, one of the things I want to clear up, too, is um, the idea that uh, wine, again, always means fermented alcoholic wine. And what, what some people say is, well, back in Bible times, you see, the grapes were only in season for a little while, and then they could have grape juice. And maybe that's what, maybe you're right on what you're saying about that. But then when it's out of season, all that would be available would be fermented wine. Well, that, that sounds real good at... Uh, when you first hear it, but that simply does not go along with the facts. As a matter of fact, uh, in the first century and even before the uh, people of that time, the Greeks had um, perfected four different ways in which they could preserve grape juice in such a way that it would not ferment. There was the uh, boiling method, and once uh, you get above 170 degrees, all the alcohol and the alcohol Agents are evaporated at 212 degrees. That was one method. The filtering method. Plutarch speaks of this method where they separate the gluten and the yeast from the juice. And when that's removed, you, can't, you cannot produce alcohol, alcoholic wine. And then uh, the subsidence method. And what they did then is they get it down to a certain temperature below 45 degrees. And then all the gluten settles to the body, the bottom. They take that out and it's impossible to produce alcoholic wine. And then fumigation, uh, where they added sulfur agents, and this eliminated the fermenting power of the yeast. So they went to great trouble back in that day to make sure that the, um, that the wine, the non-alcoholic wine, grape juice, would not ferment. So from these historians and from these different methods, we can already see that non-alcoholic wine was used and referred to it and referred to as wine, and they went to great lengths to preserve it in that way. Well, let's go. This is what we would like to do, isn't it? We like to go to the Bible. Let's go to the Old Testament first, and let's see what the Old Testament has to say. How do we? How do we? How can we be sure that we're talking about non-alcoholic wine in some of these instances? Well, every time you see wine spoken of in a very positive way, can't be. It can't be referring to the fermented wine because we're going to find uh, sometimes wine is spoken of as being 
the worst possible uh, beverage and sometimes spoken of as a blessing. In Genesis 27, verse 28, wine is referred to as a token or a sign of material prosperity. In Joel 2, verse 18 and 19, uh, it's used with reference to the blessing of the Messianic age or the coming of the Messiah. Um, it's spoken of in Isaiah 55, verse 1, in reference to the offer of God's saving grace. On and on, the scripture references go in a very positive way. Not referring to alcoholic wine, must be non-alcoholic grape juice. Perhaps the clearest scripture is Isaiah 65, verse 8. Here the Bible says, Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, in the grapes, the cluster of grapes. And one says, Do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it. The new wine is found in the cluster. You can't get fermented wine from the cluster. It's talking about what we refer to as grape juice or the fruit of the, fruit of the vine. Now, as you're listening tonight, some of you already have conviction about these. They're firm. Don't, don't just uh, get so comfortable and just say, well, I already got this. I hope you're listening, and I hope you're, you're, you're jotting down at least mentally some of the points so when these, this question comes up, you can give an answer to everyone that asks you a reason of the hope that's in you. But on the other hand, we've got these positive scriptures, but then we've got, as you've already noticed in Proverbs chapter 23 and 29, wine spoken of as a, as a curse, as a blight, woe, sorrow, contentions, complaint, wounds without cause, redness of eyes, bites like a serpent, stings like an adder. That's the same thing as that which is a blessing and is spoken of in, in so many positive ways, can't be. Proverbs 23 verse 31 says, don't even look at it. Don't even look at this kind of wine. Do not look on wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. He's not talking about grape juice. Why would he warn about looking at grape juice? But there's a kind of wine that'll get you, that'll destroy you. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says, wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Over and over again, the Bible teaches that God's people are supposed to be wise. Wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And you get just the opposite. When you start meddling in just the littlest bit with alcohol, with fermented wine, somebody says, now, nah, just a little bit's not going to hurt anybody. But part of the whole problem with alcohol is who knows how little to drink. Who knows when they've drunk too much? Experts say people don't know. Some people say, well, that process begins after just a drink or two. Some others, well, it depends on how much food is eaten, uh, the body weight, and so on. There's a lot of factors. But I like what the uh, what was found in the 1985's Reader's Digest. Seagram's, which is an alcohol company, Put this in one of their articles. The safe rule for yourselves and others is none for the road. Not just to stay below a certain level of alcohol and drinking, but none. And the idea that I get from that is, if even a little can impair the judgment of one driving an automobile, would it not also spiritually imperil the Christian trying to walk the straight and narrow? And I think for those of us, the younger we are, the more... Um, exposed we are, the more vulnerable we are to the devil and his temptations. And what we do when we start drinking, we just become more and more vulnerable. 
Alcohol is a habit-forming narcotic that weakens one's self-control. We've already talked about how important self-control is. You start drinking just a little bit and that becomes inhibited. So what happens? You take a little bit and then you're, then you're not able to uh, understand and see as clearly as before. Well, a little bit more. I'm okay. A little bit more. And then before you know it, everybody can tell that you're drunk and you've gone way past what the Bible has taught. Habakkuk 2, verse 15, again, another Old Testament passage. Woe unto him that gives his neighbor drink and puts his bottle to him and makes him drunk also. Genesis 9, 20, very sad story. After uh, Noah uh, had survived the flood, we read about him in Genesis 9, 20, then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. This man who had stood up and, and done so well and done so right, now is humiliated in shame because of what? Drinking. In Genesis 19, 32 and 33, after leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, finally, Lot commits incest with his daughters. Would Lot have ever done that? Sober? Of course not. The daughters said, come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So Lot's children ended up being his grandchildren as well. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9 through 11. Incidentally, all of us as Christians are priests. 1 Peter 2, verse 5 and 9, aren't we? We're priests, all of us in, in, under the new covenant. The Bible says in Leviticus 10, verse 9 through 11, to the priests, do not drink wine nor strong drink, that you may put a difference between the holy and the unholy, the unclean and the clean, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken. Clearly, the message of the Old Testament is that there are two kinds of wine. One fermented, alcoholic, and it's a blight. It's a curse. It's a shame. And God's people shouldn't even look at it. And the other kind of wine is a blessing. And it speaks of the material prosperity and the blessings that we would have in Christ. Let's look at the New Testament for just a little while. And we'll find that the New Testament confirms and I believe even strengthens what we've already noticed from the Old Testament as far as prohibiting the drinking of wine socially or recreationally. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 2 and 18, verse 3, the angel said to the mother of harlots, for all the nations were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Context will help us determine, won't it, whether that's grape juice or alcoholic wine. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. What's he talking about? He's talking about alcoholic wine. Leave it alone. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and 7, as well as Ephesians 5 verse 18, the word here that's translated drunk, vine, who's an expert on the Greek language, defines this way. To make drunk or to grow drunk. Don't miss this. Don't, don't miss this. To become drunk, an inceptive verb marking the process or the state expressed to become intoxicated. So what he's talking about, about um, drunkenness and becoming drunk, it's not just one spot here. Okay, you, you've drunk, you can drink this many drinks and you're okay. Then you get over here, then all of a sudden you're drunk. What he's saying is that the process of drinking is referred to. That the drunkenness is a process. It's an ongoing process. It's not just at a certain point or at a certain level of alcohol when you're drunk, according to this word in the original. 
Romans 12, verse 9 says, Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Abstain from all appearance, every form of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5, 22. Some people say that a small amount of alcohol really doesn't affect them, doesn't influence them. They understand that some people have problems when they start drinking, but it doesn't really bother them. But a couple of uh, scientists um, who are drinkers themselves, Neil Kessel and Henry Walton, uh, say to the contrary. In their book, Alcoholism, they report that even in small amounts, alcohol affects speech and it affects one's balance and it impairs judgment. And that's the problem. That's the problem. It impairs judgment. We've got to have the power to decide between right and wrong. We have enough trouble uh, with temptation as it comes our way when we have our full uh, faculties. But when we begin to have those relax and our power of restraint is lessened, then temptation, we give in to temptation much more readily. And our responsibility as Christians is to stand and withstand and overcome temptation. Let's go back to John 2, verse 1 through 11. Was Jesus making intoxicating wine? Did he make alcoholic wine for them to have? A number of questions for us to think about, to just logically reason through. Uh, one of the things that sometimes people say as well, you know, he, he uh, saved the best to the last, so that meant it had to be alcoholic. The, the question about the best being last, well, certainly that would mean that uh, the alcohol that Jesus made was alcoholic. Uh, that's why there was such a surprise. Well, no matter what it was, if you had um, a lot of soda and some of it had already lost its fizz, its carbonation, which would you use first? Well, you would automatically think you'd use the best first and you wouldn't save the best to last. Whatever type of drink it is, you would use it first in case you didn't have to get to the less, the lower quality. That certainly is not an argument. Would Jesus do something that might cause him to lose control of his mind, his... Uh, his uh, his control of doing right and wrong? Or would he help others do that by turning the water into wine? Romans 6.13, Paul writes, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Intoxicating wine intoxicates. It poisons. It's a depressant drug. Would Jesus put that as a stumbling block before others? Everyone agrees that there are some people that if they start drinking, they will become alcoholics or drunkards. Can you picture Jesus doing this? Can you see him handing out a, a bag of cocaine to people at a party? Of course not. Well, why would he do, uh, why would he be handing out and giving uh, um, alcohol, 120 to 180 gallons to people who have already been drinking a lot of this drink? Neither give place to the devil, Ephesians 4 27. I like, I like the illustration one man presented. He says, suppose that, that you were approached by a man who was offering you a drink of cider. And in addition to that, you knew that this man was a, a very godly, holy, righteous man. He was a man who was regular in attending worship, you know, constant in praying and, and studying the Bible, reaching out to the lost. You knew he was this kind of man and he offered you a drink of his cider. What kind of drink would it be? Would it be apple juice or alcohol? 
You know what it would be. You would know. So why would we say that Jesus, when we know that wine can be fermented or unfermented, why would we assume that that wine was alcoholic? I don't think we can. I don't think anyone, uh, anyone using their reasoning powers would do so. Another point. Um, some say it must have been intoxicating wine because in, I think it's about verse 9, it, it says well drunk, when they had well drunk. It's interesting to look. I looked at translations on this, and uh, dozens of translations render it as having a lot to drink and uh, synonyms of that. The same word is used in the Greek Old Testament translated nation in Psalm 36, verse 8, as abundantly satisfied, abundantly, having a lot, drunk its full, fill. Jesus made wine, but he didn't make alcoholic wine. Well, the last thing we want to talk about, and to me this is the strongest, I think there's a number of strong points to notice, but I think this is the, the key, that if you haven't been convicted yet, and you haven't been convinced yet, this is the, the clearest area in which you can be convicted. In 1 Peter 5, verse 8, of course, you're familiar with the scripture, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That word sober there is also used in another passage, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6 through 8. And if you have a Bible, please turn there. We're going to look at that. We're going to break down something and show conclusively that, uh, that you absolutely cannot um, separate alcohol and the abstaining from alcohol from this passage. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning with verse 6. <clears throat> Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep at night and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober. You can't take the discussion of alcohol out of this passage. Look at the passage and watch something that Paul's doing here. He talks about those of the day. And he contrasts that with those of the night. What are they? Day and night. Total opposites. Total, complete opposites. Then uh, those who watch or who are awake and alert are contrasted with those who sleep. Total opposites. And then he contrasts those who are sober with those who are drunk. They're total opposites. They mean exactly the opposite thing. Let's see if you get this. It looks like Paul is saying... The day is the opposite of night, or this is obvious as you read it. Watching is the opposite of sleeping. Being sober is the opposite of being drunk. We're to be of the day. We're to be watching, and we're to be sober. So what's it mean to be sober? Does it mean anything less than falling down, fall down drunk, dog drunk? Uh, if you're anything less than that, you're okay? Is it just uh, some point along this continuum here? As long as you stay just... Be below this certain point, then you're okay. Look at, listen to uh, uh, all of these scholars and uh, their testimony. Burnfield, in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, defines this word that's translated sober here in 1 Thessalonians 5, defines it the opposite of intoxication. Folks, what's the opposite of intoxication? It's none, no drinking, zero alcohol in the system. Jewish philosopher uh, Philo in uh, AD 40 says soberness and drunkenness are opposites, using that same word. So if we're to be sober, then we're to stay as far away from drunkenness as we can get. And what does that do? That harmonizes what we saw in the Old Testament. Don't even look at it. 
Liddell and Scott in their lexicon, the first definition of this word sober means to drink no wine. Vine defines it free from the influence of intoxicants, not moderation. Leave it alone. Lampy in his lexicon, be, be temperate, drink no wine. Donegan, live astemiously or abstain from wine. No wine. Robinson, to be sober, temperate, abstinent, especially in respect to wine. Abbott and Smith, to be sober, to abstain from wine. The word sober means not moderation. Don't get drunk. Just be sure you can walk in a straight line. It means leave it alone. Leave it completely alone. Don't ever touch it. Well, I hope our study has been helpful for you tonight. I hope you've decided. Mom and dad, when your son or daughter comes to you and acts uncertain about this question, is it all right to drink just a little bit? I hope you're convicted in telling them, son, daughter, don't even touch it. It's wrong to take even a little bit socially or recreationally. I think the scriptures are clear. I hope we're clear tonight. If you're a young person, it's not going to be very long, even maybe at 10, 11, at 12, when somebody's going to ask you to take that first drink. Be like many Christians who've lived before you who said when they were offered that first drink, no thanks, never touch it. Don't even take the first drink. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.